0: All right, have you ever heard of a guy by the name of Eddie Chapman? Eddie Chapman may have been the precursor to Eddie Haskell, okay? From the Leave it to Beaver days. Uh, he's, he was uh, born in the early 1900s at age 17. He actually joined the British Army. Uh, he did that for about nine months, and then he went AWOL. They didn't know any, couldn't figure out where he was. It took him the British Army two months to find him. When they did eventually find him... They had some unkind words for him, and they gave him a dishonorable discharge. So this young man decided that he would make his living as a, in a life of crime, and he specialized in breaking into safes. He was in and out of prison, just kind of out there. One time while he was in prison on the Channel Islands during World War II for a crime that he had committed, the Germans actually overtook the Channel Islands. And while he's in prison... Uh, he decided that he he had a lot of interest in becoming a German spy and wrote the Germans a letter expressing his intent, saying, I'd like to kind of help you out and be a spy. What do you think? Well, they weren't so sure about this guy. They took him to Paris, France, where again he told them, I did want to work with you. I want to be a spy. And so they trained him. They trained him on explosives. He seemed to have a knack for that, on radio communications, parachute jumping, a bunch of other things. And he was trained to go back into England and start Sabotaging particular sites. Well, what the Germans didn't know, and Eddie Chapman didn't know, was that the British Army, their secrets, uh, their intelligence, had actually had decrypted German code, and they actually knew all about Eddie Chapman. They even knew where he was going to have his first uh, drop, where he's going to be parachuted in, and his first site to uh, sabotage. Well, when he actually lands and he's starting making his way to the target lo and behold, the British um, intelligence uh, actually apprehended him, and so they have their British citizen, who is also a criminal, who is now a German spy, and what would you do with a guy like that? You know what they did? They turned him. They convinced him that what you really need to be doing is actually working for us, and you can now be a double agent. And so our guy, Eddie Chapman, became a double agent. Now, he had been set in to go and basically sabotage this uh, the place where they're manufacturing planes in Hatfield. And so what they did, working with MI5, is that they created what looked to be a sabotage event. And they were so good that when German reconnaissance flew a plane over there to take pictures to see what Eddie had done, they were convinced that Eddie Chapman had indeed been successful and had actually kind of blown the place up. And they were no longer able to manufacture those mosquito airplanes. And so for the rest of the war. He just kept going from Germany to England. He was a double agent. And it was really interesting. Uh, like he had a fiance. In both war zones. Okay. Both in Germany and in England. When the war's over. He actually married neither one of them. He actually marries another gal. Okay. Uh, the, his British handlers. Just trying to acknowledge this erratic personal history that he has, they codenamed him Zigzag. He just kept to be going all over the place. Now, how terrible of an existence would that be? Like you're just never sure who you're really identified with. Well, you know, there's a lot of Christians. They they kind of zigzag. They're certainly they, they believe in Jesus and like in a setting like this, oh definitely want to identify with Christ and we'll sing the songs and we're in it. But on the other hand, Uh, Monday morning at school with the friends Friday night with the team it's as if they're a double agent they're oh they just kind of fit right in and I tell you what that is a that kind of erratic personal life it's miserable and some of you know this on a first-hand basis and furthermore we've got people that are truly believers in Christ but they live with such a defeatist attitude I mean, they believe the gospel to an extent, but they themselves just keep rehashing and rehearsing all of the sin that has happened in their life. Bad things they've done. Things they've done to their mind, their body, the drugs they took, the sexual immorality they've been involved in, the crime maybe they committed, just the evil things that they have done. And yeah, they believe they're forgiven, but then of course they're overwhelmed by their own sinfulness and they just kind of wallow back into this pit of despair. What makes... The Christian life joyful, vibrant, meaningful, powerful. You see, this I believe is Christianity's greatest need. How do you and I really confidently live a Christ centered life? What does that look like? You remember as we were going through First Thessalonians last week, we came to this great prayer in chapter three, verses eleven through thirteen. Paul is praying that the Thessalonians, and by virtue of the fact that the Spirit of God had him write this, and this book is a part of the New Testament, he's praying for all believers that we would have a Christ-centered life. And you remember, we looked at it closely. In fact, I challenge you to pray this each day. that Lord, that you would direct our way, that you would increase our love, and that you would mature our faith. That's what you find, verses 11, 12, and 13. If you want to know what this kind of life looks like and how to do it, that's where chapter four steps in. Chapters, chapter four, verses one through three, is like key that answers the question how you and I can confidently live a Christ centered life. And the first thing that you need to know, if this is going to be a reality for you and me, is that you need to know that we are designed to walk and please God. We're designed to walk with God and to please Him. Look at chapter four, verse one. He says, finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. Okay, so this is really loaded up. He's saying by virtue of the authority of Jesus, that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do, that you excel still more. Finally is introducing the application of this letter. It's the final segment. And remember in 310, Paul is saying, you know, I really want to come and see you because I want to address what is lacking in your faith. The issues that were lacking in their faith are the ones that they address in chapters 4 and 5. And he's saying, you need to know that you and I are designed to walk and please God. If you want to know, what did Paul talk about when he was working with people and, and speaking and doing his discipleship ministry? It had a lot to do with walking and pleasing God. But if that's going to be true for you and I, there's something you need to know. You can't walk and please God until you actually know Him. You can't, you've can't. got to have a beginning point to your walk. There has to come a place and time in your life where you're believing and trusting in Christ and Christ alone. And when you believe in Christ, that He is the eternal Son of God, He's sovereign, that He is the one that lived a righteous life, dies and pays the penalty for sin, and rose again on the third day. When you believe in Him, His life takes up residency in you. You are a new Christian, and you begin to walk. And you need to know that you are pleasing to Him. This is what happened to the Thessalonians. You remember that? In chapter one, verse nine, they had formerly been idol worshippers, but He says, "Your testimony is going throughout the entire empire." How you turned to God. From idols to serve a living and true God. And so he's using the word walk. It's a real common New Testament metaphor. It has the idea of implying motion, direction, progress, purpose. And just like when you physically walk, you're dependent upon your legs to do so, the Christian learns that we are dependent upon Christ. We find our life in Christ and we move forward in life. And he says, You walk. And please God. And do you see this? You might have seen it in parentheses. It says, just as you actually do walk. Isn't that something? What he's doing, he's affirming, you actually already are pleasing to God. You already walk with him. And this is what is so needed. Like, this will change your life. If you will truly believe that it is trusting in Christ, that's what makes me pleasing to God. So many people feel like God is just so upset with them and he's just basically tolerating you, you know He's like you're just a miserable failure and we just got to get you through this life And then i'll take you into my kingdom and you live defeated discouraged Overwhelmed by your own sinfulness God wants you overwhelmed by his grace He sees you as pleasing to him that should put a smile on your face because that changes everything And how freeing and how strengthening it is to know that you're pleasing to God. And he says, you know what? You actually walk this way. Now, when you talk about being pleasing to God, it has the idea that God finds joy in you. He finds joy in the reality that you're trusting and believing in Christ. But he wants you to walk in such a way that you have an attitude that, God, I want to bring you joy. I want to please you. I will tell you that you can actually go through the motions of the Christian life. You can actually find things in the word and dutifully respond to them. But your heart isn't in it. That's not pleasing to God. You see, God wants your heart. Because once he has your heart, your heart to please him, your behavior is going to follow. You know, you can please, you can uh, try to walk with God by not necessarily having a heart to please him, but just doing what he says. We would call that legalism. Uh, it's really interesting. God has an entire book dedicated to the subject. In fact, he used one of his own prophets, a guy by the name of Jonah. You remember Jonah? Talk about having to learn life the hard way, right? God said, I want you to do this. Jonah said, no way. I got other ideas. Remember? And he had experienced a very painful existence uh, in the belly of this large fish. The gastric juices completely bleached out his skin, okay? It was the reverse of tanning, okay? All right? And he had the markings of a guy who had disobeyed God, right? And finally, God said, you know, listen, I still, still want you to go to Nineveh. And he's like, okay, I'm thinking I might go this time, right? And he did. And he did what God told him to do to warn the people about the judgment to come. And then he sat up on a hill in his lawn chair. And he's like, God, torch him, right? I, I want you to destroy them. Did he obey God? Yeah, he eventually got around doing what God said. Was his heart in it? No. And that's what he addresses in Jonah chapter 4. See, God wants your heart. He wants you to have a heart that pleases him. That that wants to do that. Because that's what you and I are designed for. And this is the great motivation in the Christian life. God, I want to please you. I want to give you this warning. Selfishness and self-centeredness are the great enemy to walking and pleasing God. G.H. Morrison said this. Nine-tenths of our unhappiness is selfishness. Ooh. Are you a generally unhappy person? Oh, you can paste on a little smile when you need to, but you're generally a pretty unhappy person. Can I ask? Are you a pretty selfish individual, self-centered? See, God says, this is what you're designed for, to walk with me, to please me, to have this kind of attitude. And so we look at our daily schedule. In our activities, how we go to school, how we function in our jobs, how we go out at home, do it at home, our entertainment. And we go, God, is this pleasing to you? I want to live this way. This is the great motivation. In fact, it's the highest ambition of the Christian life. Remember in Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 9, Paul wrote this, therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be what? To be pleasing to him. Whether we're in glory, in the presence of God himself, or we're here on earth, bottom line, we're here to please him. And I'll tell you how very freeing it is. By the way, this is how Jesus functioned. Remember, like, for instance, in John 8, 29, Jesus said this, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I just live to please my Father. That is the the beauty of the triunity. There's this great love And this love was demonstrated by Jesus even for his father and saying, I just live to do the things that are pleasing to him. When your heart's right, your behavior will follow. And this is really possible when we're in Christ. So if you want to live confidently this Christ-centered life, you know how you do it? By knowing that we are designed to walk with and please God. But there's something else you need to know. And that is that we need to be growing as those who are completely dedicated to him did you see that at the end of verse 1 he says that you you walk and please god just as you actually do walk and that you excel still more god wants you to continue to grow as those who are completely dedicated to him the word excel has the idea of increasing that there is more taking place you see just like we physically are designed to grow that is true of you spiritually you begin as an infant. You are in Christ, but God intends for you to grow. If you're involved in, a, let's say, a 100-mile bike race, and you have a good first mile, right? And you're doing your biking thing, and you're feeling pretty good about it, and you, you actually knock off that first mile, and you just kind of sit back up on the seat in your saddle, and you're just like, you know, I think I'm just going to coast the rest of the way. And what happens is you start losing momentum, everybody starts passing you, and you can't coast the rest of the way. You need to keep pedaling. You need to be still involved. Friends, that's what it's like to be in this Christian life. He wants you to continue. The good work that God has started in your life, He fully intends for you to mature and grow. And that's why He says, I want you to excel still more. And this is the key to holy living. It is learning to live to please God. And this, this theme of walking and pleasing God and growing This is a a common theme that Paul emphasizes in the New Testament. So like, for instance, in Colossians one ten, listen to this. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So you simply say, God, will this bring you joy? This activity I'm considering, this entertainment that I'm engaging in, this way that I'm going about my classwork, this this how I'm going about my job— God, does this bring you pleasure? You know, this, the Christian life is just continually growing to become more and more dedicated to Him. And it's an ongoing process. Holiness is an achievement. Holiness is a direction. It's a process. Years ago, uh, we had the idea that we would uh, build a swing set for our kids, okay? And so that was our Christmas present. And, of course, having one of the coldest winters that we ever had in Texas here, at least for us, and so I'm out there with a few relatives, and we're trying to put up a, a swing set. And every time I usually engage in projects like this, it usually takes me about five times longer than it should. And I'm in there, and I got the directions, and I'm trying to put the bullet boards up, and my hands are really cold, and my tools don't work so well. But, it, but eventually, you know, we got it up, and the kids could actually play on it, and they could climb on it. But it was a process. Growing as a Christian, it's a process. We have folks, as I look around, I know that you are a brand new believer. It's been less than two months since you placed your faith in Jesus. And you're just growing. And we have folks that have been walking with God for a long time. But you see, we're not only called to walk and please God to know that, but we're called to grow as those fully dedicated to Him. We're walking by faith. We're learning to trust Him. We're asking God to help us and understand what our next steps of development are. We're learning to keep Christ at the center of everything that we do. But one of the great sicknesses in the Christian life is what we could call stagnation or complacency. Where you get to the place like, eh, you know, it doesn't really matter, not really involved, being a part of the body of Christ is an option. That sort of mentality, that's like a sickness. That's not health. That needs to be addressed. Because God wants you to understand that he wants you to keep growing. Keep being the experience of Christ in you. And how do you actually know what's pleasing to God? Well, you got your Bibles open, you look at verse 2. God actually has revealed what's pleasing to him in his word. He says, verse 2, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. You know, you had received the instruction, verse 1, You know that we gave you by the authority of Christ Jesus these commands. Or that could be uh, instruction. The word commandment there or instruction, it's a military term. It refers to orders given by a superior officer. If you've ever been involved in the military and you've received orders from a commanding officer, you understand that that's not really an option for you. You must do as they say. Uh, Did anybody ever try to just ignore or blow off orders from a commanding officer? Not that you want to acknowledge. How would that go for you? Not well, right? You understand that they intend for me to do what I've asked. See, God wants us to understand this. That he's Lord, he's in control, and he's in command. And he wants his people heeding what he says, following his word. That's why he says, this is, we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are apostles, official sent ones. We have given you the word God intends for you to incorporate it in your life. You see, the spirit of God takes the word of God... To accomplish the work of God in a believer's life. And so, like chapters four and five, you know that's what he's doing. He's actually telling you, What does God want us to do? God's word is for our growth. So, like you'll see it in verse three and following, like three through eight, that we're to live morally and sexually pure lives. That we're to four nine, we're to love one another, four ten, we're to work hard, five thirteen, we're to live in peace with one another. Five, sixteen 16 through 18, we're to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks for this is what? This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What happens is the scriptures, they reorient our perspective. We, we focus and get to see God and that he's sovereign and that he's good. And even though we don't understand and the life is painful and it's hard, we've got God and he's calling us, trust me, I'm your loving father. I'm so very good, good to you. And he's what, what you're going to find in the Bible is that all of the Bible is centered on Christ. Old Testament and New Testament. It is pointing to him. It is showing our need for Jesus. It is extolling his greatness and how wonderful it is to know Christ. So, you know, in today's modern age, the Bible seems to be less and less relevant, especially in the public sphere. In fact, it's almost like you find a lot of Christians that, What God has to say in his word is totally optional. In fact, you may be very unfamiliar because you're never in it. And yet, they are the clear words of God. So what happens is, if if you're not hearing from God through his word, then something or someone else is going to take that role in your life. And, uh, like, for instance, there are lots of modern-day Ann Landers out there. And they are discipling people, a whole generation. Like even in our own newspaper, we've got Harriet Cole, Kathy Mitchell, and Marcy Sugar. Let me ask you, do you spend more time reading them and what they have to say about life, or do you spend more time listening to God and what he has written in his word? It's really interesting when we uh, consider the source of our truth and our information to ask, where is it from? Dr. Haddon Robinson, he's kind of a teacher of preachers. He likes to ask this question. People will say something, and he asks this, where did you get that? Oh, well, I, someone told me, or I heard it on TV, or I made it up. Or did you get it from God's word? Where did you get that? You see, God's word, it shapes our understanding. It builds knowledge. And from that, it shapes our beliefs, and our attitudes, and our convictions, and our values. What we believe about heaven, hell, life, its purpose, what we do with our money, why we're here, where we're going. It's shaped by his word. And those convictions show up in our behavior, how we conduct ourselves. All of this is based on the word. So if you and I are going to live a life dedicated to growing as those who are pleasing God and walking with him, you've got to have some intake in God's word. You know, one of the problems is like we sin. Isn't it interesting that when we sin, how we kind of like still want to do the Adam and Eve thing and kind of hide from God? You ever see that? What does God want? He doesn't want anything coming between you. That fellowship, he wants pure. He wants you enjoying him. So he says, hey, when you sin, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want nothing coming between me and you. You need to know that you're pleasing to me. I love you. So how do you get to know the instruction of God's Word? Well, I'll tell you two ways verse 2 comes into play. One is corporately. As the body of believers. Fundamentally, a church must help its people come to grow and understand the Word and to preach it. It is the great command. We must do this. Teach the Word effectively and relevantly. Helping people not only understand what God has said in his word, but helping people get to a place where they themselves are growing and reading the word for themselves. That is what a church must do. And we, I want you to know that we put a great degree of attention and we're very careful to try to help people do just that. Because you can't grow apart from the word. Transformation comes from God's revelation. But not only is there a corporate time where you're receiving God's word, like that's what's taking place right now. But you've got to have some personal time in your individual life where you're taking God's word into your life. Like, if that's not happening right now, can I just ask you just to even read one verse a day? Could you do that? If you could do that, you might try, like, maybe a passage or a chapter. If you're like, I don't even know where to start, just take this book, 1 Thessalonians. Just read a chapter a day. Ask God, teach me. Speak to me. Or you could maybe even read the whole book. It won't take you more than like six or seven minutes. Not a real big book. But the more times you read, the more you're going to see like, whoa, God is very careful to help me understand his great love and what it means to walk with him. You see, Jesus said, Matthew 4, 4, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We get that on a physical level, right? We don't miss meals. Some of us may be eating too much, Right? Physically, but let me ask you, how is it going spiritually? Are you partaking of the meat and potatoes and the broccoli and the things that are going to make you strong and really develop health in your life? Well, friends, it's found in his word. And Jesus asked a really profound question. At the end of one of his messages, on the the sermon on the plain. it's almost as if he took like this big pregnant pause, and he said this. Why? Do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why are you calling me Lord, but yet you never really heed with what I say? And then he went on to tell them, I want you to build your life on me and my word. The question is, who is the boss in your life? See, not listening to the word, not taking verse 2 into full value, it's like being on a basketball team, but having really no understanding of what your role is. You never listen to the coach. You don't know your role on the team. You don't know any of the plays. You're, you never are growing. You're never incorporating what's being asked. You got the jersey. You're on the team, but you don't know what that means when you're on the court or you're off it. You're on the team. You got the jersey, but you really don't know what it means to be involved with the game. Friends, if you're a Christian that never listens to God and his word, it's almost as equivalent of like being on a team, never listening to the coach, Not having any idea of any of the plays, you're not, you know, no idea that you're supposed to make disciples of all the nations, no idea what holiness is, it has a way of showing. I want you to know that this is God's will for your life, that you and I grow as those who are completely dedicated to God. In fact, it's right there in black and white. Look at verse three. For this is the will of God. What is it? Your sanctification. That is, That you abstain from sexual immorality. This is God's will for your life. A lot of folks are interested in in God's will for their life. Especially a lot of college students. What is God's will for my life? Translated, who should I marry? Okay? So when you talk to college students, we always are covering this, the will of God. But the will of God has three aspects. There's God's determined will. That's what he sovereignly decreed is going to happen. That he's going to accomplish. And we see this being played out in history. Another aspect of God's will is God's revealed will—what He has revealed in His Word in terms of directives of lifestyle and attitudes and beliefs. Okay, and there's both uh, prohibitions and there are affirmations. So, like God's revealed will is that you experience salvation, that you have sacrifice to your life. There's spirit-filled living, that you pray, that you will suffer, you j- rejoice. These are these are all revealed in God's Word. But there's a third aspect of God's will, and that's God's. Specific will. Like, we want to know, like, so do I take this job or do I take this next step or what classes should I be or what university? These are, we're looking for direction. You look at God's word, you pray, you talk with people that have wisdom, God shapes your desires, and you take steps forward. But there's something you need to know it is God's revealed will. That second aspect, that you are sanctified. Sanctification has the idea, it's the process of. Of becoming holy, of being set apart to God and His purposes. And that's what God intends, is that His people are growing in their sense of being dedicated to God and His Word. And so He says, Friends, this is God's will for your life. Now, you may find yourself struggling at times, being set apart. Struggling is very different than succumbing. Succumbing is that you just kind of give yourself over, there's no fight. This is like, no, I'm just going to go to my little sin. I'm going to try to uh, bring some sort of help or healing or hope to my life, and you just kind of go plowing into it. It's widespread. must have been happening in Thessalonica because he addresses even sexual immorality, but it it can be a wide variety of things. In fact, anything other than finding your joy, sense of peace, perspective, and purpose in Christ, it's it's like an idol. He says, no, I want you to be set apart to me. You may struggle, but succumbing is when you just give yourself over to it. You just, like, fall into the sin, and you never even struggle. He says it's the ongoing process where God's will is shaping the way we live. And holiness isn't grimness. Sometimes we get the idea that, well, if I was holy, well, then I would have to be kind of, like, really grim. Like, I'm just kind of, like, I've been soaked in embalming fluid. I'm just like, I'm a holy person. I'm miserable, but I'm holy. Actually... That's such the wrong picture. Holiness is joy. Holiness is knowing that you're pleasing to God. It's You've got your peace. You've got your presence. There's a sense of confidence that comes from knowing that I'm growing. I'm being set apart to Him. Yeah, I'm far from perfect, but I'm, I'm wanting to please God. And I know that He loves me unconditionally. Friends, that is so freeing. In fact, I would go on to say that this is Christianity's greatest need. It's for Christians to walk confidently with Christ. How do you do it? Well, it's right here in the text. You got to be knowing that you are designed to walk and please God. That's what you're designed for. But it's also growing as those who are completely dedicated to him. Let me share with you some excerpts from One Lady's Journey from Pain and Shame and Brokenness to Life, Joy and Ministry in Christ. Her name is Tricia Goyer. She wrote this article called Facing the Truth, and I'd like to read you some excerpts. It was a story I did not want to tell. But as Sanctity of Life Sunday approached, my pastor asked me to share my story with the church. The story I had kept secret for many years. My abortion story. And while I understood this message could help other women find forgiveness, I also knew it meant I'd have to tell my kids. Something I dreaded, even though my kids were young at the time. Although I was their mom, I thought they'd hate me when they knew the truth. After all, just how do you tell your kids that they'd have another brother or sister if it weren't for their mom's decision? Well, John and I prayed about how to tell our children. We knew that although they'd heard the word abortion before, they most likely didn't understand what it was. Since they were still young... They didn't need to know details. We also wanted them to know why many women terminate their pregnancy because of fear, worry, or pressure from other people. Well, a few days later, my husband and I explained about abortion and the decision that mommy made at a young age. I could tell from my kids' faces that they were upset and John shared why a woman might do this. And they expressed sadness for those women. And then with tears in my eyes, I told them my story With a shaky voice, I explained that when I was in high school, I'd become pregnant. I said that when I visited a clinic, the workers told me it really wasn't a baby yet and that everything would be better if I had the procedure. I told my kids that I had always wanted to be a mom, but I was afraid of having a baby as a 15-year-old. I was worried about what people would think. I told my kids that I wanted to believe that what that clinic worker said was true because it seemed like an easy way out. So I ignored the nagging voice in my head that told me I was ending a life. After the abortion, I was heartbroken and numb. It took many years for the emotional pain to go away. Months after my abortion, I saw a woman wearing a precious feet pin on her sweater. When I commented about it, she told me that her pin represented the size... Of the feet of a 10 week old fetus. I knew then that my baby had a body, feet, hands, and a beating heart. The reality of my decision became clear. Overwhelmed with guilt, I became self destructive and made more bad decisions. But when I was 17, I accepted Jesus. I realized that I'd been making wrong choices and I asked God to do something with my life. I told my kids, I'd ask Jesus to forgive me. I asked for their forgiveness, too, for ending the life of the sibling they'd never know on earth. And it only took a few seconds for three sets of arms to wrap around me. It's okay, Mom. We love you, and we forgive you, they told me. It was like a dam broke within my soul. For so long, this secret had been swelling against the wall I had built. Sharing the truth and seeing they still love me made my chest light and warm. Tears spilled, and I held them in my arms. And as a mom, the last people I ever wanted to disappoint were my kids. Their hurt was evident, but their love was even greater. When my daughter was 16, she returned from a youth social gathering and told me that the subject of abortion came up. Mom, many of them said that a woman should have a choice, she reported. But then I told them your story. My daughter had shared with her peers about my heartache and pain. Many women do not know what they are choosing and they suffer for years afterward, she told them, just like my mom. Originally, keeping my secret seemed like the right thing to do, but sharing my experiences has allowed others, my children included, to better understand decisions and consequences and the truth about pain, loss, And regret and forgiveness through Jesus. Friends, we have to come with our pain and our hurt, the deepest, darkest secrets of our life, and we come to Jesus. You need to know that if you're trusting in Christ, you are pleasing to Him. His heart is for you. The stigma, the guilt, the shame, they are taken away because of Christ. He wants you to know that. You need to believe the gospel. You don't necessarily have to tell your kids your story. Let me tell you what you do necessarily need to do. You need to believe the gospel. That Christ has paid the penalty for your sins. That you are truly free and forgiven. You see, this is the Thessalonian story. They've done a lot of bad things. I'm sure there's things that kind of crept up in their mind. What Paul is saying, though, you need to know something. You walk and please God. You are pleasing to Him. You know, they didn't even know about Jesus until Paul and Timothy showed up. But when they believed, God set them on a completely new trajectory of walking and pleasing God and knowing with confidence that God loved them immensely. You certainly don't want to go through life as a double agent, do you? Zigzagging back and forth between truth and error, hope and despair, I've got news for you. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are free because, friends, this is the gospel. This is what Jesus has accomplished. You and I, we're not defined by our past. You know what we're defined by? Our Savior. For we are made with him. For him. You see, Christianity's greatest need, you know what it is? It's for Christians to walk confidently with Christ. How do you do that? These verses tell us how. Knowing that we're designed to walk and please God and growing as those completely dedicated to Him. Let's pray.